Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes. Available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So we're back, one episode down and four to go on our little building in Perth journey. My name is Dezo, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about how to find the right builder and building consultant. And we're also going to be talking to Jamie from Urban Quarter, who is a land agent. Uh, This podcast type vlog type thing that we're doing at the moment was actually Jamie's idea that he had after reading my book. And he said this would be a really good format to try and do it in. It's caused me a lot of stress, but here we are. And hopefully it's all working uh, pretty well. And then uh, after that, we're going to talk to Chantel from Oldfield Settlements, who's going to explain the dark art of settlement. So it's something that pops up all the time whenever uh, you purchase land or buy an established property for that matter. And a lot of people don't know exactly what it is that a settlement agent does. They just know that they've got to have one. So uh, Chantel is going to demystify that for us. But the first thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, I guess, what you look for in a building consultant. So that's the person that works for the building company. Now, the reason I've chose to go through this first is more to do Uh, with the fact that someone like myself is going to be the first person that you probably make contact with when you embark on your building journey, whether that be in a display village or via Facebook or Instagram, if it's an online ad or something like that, or maybe you pick up the phone from realestate.com or domain, uh, the building consultant is going to be the one on the other end of the line, basically. Now, the building consultant does have um, a very big, I guess, Uh, part in the direction that uh, your whole building journey takes. So whether that be, uh, you know, where you decide to build your home, uh, what style of home it is, the layout, the size, uh, obviously the dollars and cents of it. uh, And sometimes also putting you in touch with the right finance people and settlement agents, which all um, add up to make a big difference at the end of the day. So having a lot of trust in your building consultant is super, super important. I guess, look, some of the, the skill sets I think that are important with the building consultant, I would say definitely creative flair. That's a really, really important one. It's very easy for a new home. Uh, certainly we're looking at say project homes where you're spending anywhere from probably 170 grand to say 300 uh, on the home itself. It's very easy for them to turn out very much like, I'd like to call it boxes with uh, windows and a little bit of creative flair can go a long way to getting you uh, a really, really great result. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, Also just, I mean, and I would speak for this, I guess mainly for myself here, but um, I do designs in 3D and that sort of thing for my clients. Now, I'm not saying that that is uh, the be all and end all or the right way to do it or the the wrong way to do it or or whatever. It's just that I'm a a tech nerd, obviously, as you can uh, see and hear at the moment. Um, But uh, I guess the building consultants will generally play to their strengths. And, you know, mine is that technical skill set where I'm able to do those 3D drawings and things like that. There's going to be other consultants that are a lot stronger in delivering finance for you, or they might have a land background and they know the land side of it inside out. Uh, Everyone's got their own strong points. um, And there's going to be certain consultants that you also just get along with better. It's just, I guess, human nature. You tend to gel with uh, some people better than others. Um, I know that I find that with people that I uh, meet to build homes with frequently. Some people you click with, some people you don't. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just the the way that people are. Um, So, The next thing I want to touch on, obviously, is what you look for in a builder. So that's obviously a really, really big part of it. So I would say 
Uh, again, I'm, I'm talking specifically to uh, project builders and that price bracket of say, yeah, that 170, 180 to 300 grand sort of mark there. Um, I would say reputable, obviously, um, and someone with a proven track record that's also very, very uh, financially sound. Uh, that's very, very important uh, to make sure that they can not only deliver for you right now, but also deliver in the future after you get handover of the home for things like service periods and warranties and that sort of thing. Building your home isn't just a, a now type thing or the next 12 months. You've got to think about the long-term implications as well. So selecting a builder that does have that strong uh, financial sort of backing or history is really, really important to make sure that, you know, if for some reason you run into a major issue in 10 years and you're still living in the home, that someone's actually going to be there to rectify that. Um, that's very, very important. And one that people often overlook, they're sort of, uh, I guess, uh, drawn to all the glossiness of promotions and extras and inclusions and things on the, the front end and don't really consider uh, all of that back end implication uh, as well. Uh, time. This is a really uh, important one when choosing your builder as well. So what makes a big difference to what you actually pay, the true cost of building, is actually timeframes. So what I mean by that is how long it's going to take from the time that you first sign up with the builder on what we call a preliminary works contract or some builders call it a PPA to the time you actually move into the home. So why does that matter to you, how long it takes? Simply for the fact that if you are taking out a mortgage, which most people are, that more often than not, the way that the broker is gonna structure it, and look, this isn't a uh, one size fits all scenario, but more often than not, you'll pay interest only during the course of the build uh, on, on the, um, the land and also the build as it progresses. Now, you'll settle on the land first in its entirety. So you'll start paying that quite a bit before the build starts. I don't know, might be a couple of months, something like that. Uh, then when the slab goes down, that drawdown from the bank of that money uh, goes to pay the builder. And then you start paying interest only on that as well. And it gradually increases over time. So the longer that time frame is, the more money you will essentially pay. By the time you factor in things like uh, maybe your existing mortgage or rent, and things like that as well. Quite often what happens is, is the builder that might seem really, really cheap uh, upfront may have really, really long timeframes and will actually cost you more money in the end. So uh, always ask the builder to actually provide evidence of that. They should have things like construction lists um, that they should be able to show you to show you where all of their jobs are currently at and the timeframes that they're, that they're hitting. So, uh, the next one is really what's uh, well, what's really in a house and land package. So obviously you've got your piece of land, okay? So there's going to be the land price and there might be uh, discounts or rebates uh, and things like that, which I'll get into a little bit more with Jamie in a moment. You're going to have uh, site works, stormwater management, driveway crossover, um, and things to do with, I guess, the site specifically. Now, those are variable costs. So more often than not, when you uh, look on a builder's website, and when I say more often than not, to be honest, uh, these costs won't be in there because they are a variable cost. So if I was to build, uh, let's say, house A on a block in, let's say, Alchemos, as an example, it's going to cost different 
in in site works compared to if I was to build it in, let's say, Haynes as an example. So it's getting a little bit closer to the hills um, and the site costs are probably going to go up incrementally. And generally speaking for Perth anyway, a really good way to think of it is the further that you go east, the more likely those site costs are going to creep up, particularly when you reach the foothills uh, type area, particularly with the southeastern uh, foothills. That's when we start to see the site costs creeping. Uh, generally speaking, uh, you will probably see the land adjusted to suit to a degree anyway. You obviously got your house price. So it might be the base house price of say, um, you know, your basic four by two home with uh, floor coverings and single basins and showers in it, let's say hypothetically, right? Um, now, beyond that, uh, you're gonna go through with your building consultant, the changes that you obviously wanna make. The reason you build a home is so you've got something that you can customize, right? So you're gonna wanna add things. It might be a double basin, it might be a double shower, it might be, upgrading the floors or doing something in the kitchen. There's a massive range of things that you could potentially do uh, to the home that are gonna have an impact on the price. So they are variations to the house price. Then there's potentially uh, like Shire and design guidelines costs uh, as well uh, that are going to be, again, block specific. So it might be that uh, in a particular area, you might have to have, say, upgraded glazing because of noise nearby. So a really good example of that would be uh, the Clear Estate down in Treby, just near Coburn there, uh, because of its proximity to Jandicott Airport. Uh, a requirement is that you've got to have upgraded glazing in the homes there. Um, then you've got uh, stamp duty, okay? So if you are a first homeowner and you're spending less than 300,000 at this point in time anyway, as of me making this, uh, you won't pay uh, any stamp duty on the land. Um, if you have owned a property before, then yes, you will pay stamp duty on the land. And one thing to note there as well uh, is that if you are building a home, stamp duty is only payable on the land. It's not payable on the house and the land. If you were to buy an established property, you do pay stamp duty on the whole lot. Uh, a lot of people sort of misunderstand the way that works. And look, that's actually a really good segue to uh, introduce our next sort of guest. Uh, her name is Chantel from Oldfield Settlements and she's gonna take us through just a little bit about uh, settlement and how it all works and what she does as a settlement agent. Hey Chantel, how's it going? Great Ryan, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, for those listening, this is actually our second run through the little call with Chantel. We actually tried to give this a crack uh, yesterday and I forgot to record the call. So that made it a little bit tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, second time lucky, let's say. <laughs> so Chantel is going to basically dispel uh, some of the myths just around uh, what settlement actually is. So uh, Chantel, what is it that you actually do? So pretty much a, the settlement in the simple terms is transferring of land or property from one person to another. Okay, cool. So um, I guess when someone goes through the process of purchasing or build, I should say building a home, obviously you're purchasing a piece of land and you're entering into a build contract as well. Um, can you just sort of outline um, what settlements around in terms of it's only on the land itself and not the build? That's right. So you only need a settlement agent because a settlement agent transfers a title. So the title runs with the land regardless of what's built on it. So what happens is when a buyer enters into an offer and acceptance document to purchase land, 
the document then gets sent to me as a settlement agent and then I start the process to transfer that title and check things on the contract like conditions, um, rebates, make sure titles, check everything in their time, things are getting done by the appropriate time and finance due dates and stuff like that to keep on to it for that buyer to make sure that contract is fulfilled in time. Sweet. So just around, um, let's say, if we took buying established as uh, an example versus building, correct in saying that things like stamp duty, you pay on the entire price if you buy an established home, whereas only you only pay it on the land uh, if you were building. Is that correct? So there is a benefit, uh, I guess, a cost benefit to a degree uh, in between when, when we compare building to um, buying established? Absolutely. So it goes on that, that purchase price on that offer to purchase. So for example, you're a first home buyer, you might be have no stamp duty because you're building, because your vacant land price comes in under the threshold. But if you are buying that established home, it might put you over that threshold of 435000 so you're then going to be applicable for stamp duty. So it does make a big difference for people, absolutely, um, having to only pay the stamp duty on the land price, not on the full contract. Awesome. So just... Um to give us a little bit of a background about the mechanics behind the scenes of what happens uh, with a settlement. Can you kind of talk through uh, what you're sort of doing in the background? Absolutely. So when before your finance gets approved, um, we send preliminary documents out to clients. So they're, they're crucial. They really are. I know a lot of people think, oh, my finance isn't approved yet. I'll just hold on to them. But we send those documents for a reason to ask specific questions, mainly so we can deal with their broker, with their builder, and we don't have to worry about the client too much needing to know information. If we can get that answer from one of the other people involved, it just saves them having to worry about things. But a lot of people don't understand it anyway. You've got to remember, I do this every day. So I'm used to those questions and stuff like that, whereas especially your first home buyers, they've never done it. They don't understand it. But once your finance comes in and gets approved, then it's, it's pretty quick from there. So we notify the water corporation, the local council and, and the land tax department that there is a change of ownership happening, which there are fees applicable for all of that also, to change those rates over so all new rates issued to the new buyer and also make sure there's no arrears on those rates. And if there are arrears, they all get paid at settlement so they don't get passed on to any prospective new buyer. Cool. So would you mind just going through what the... Uh, costs are that are involved with settlements, obviously, um, you know, your fee, uh, the stamp duty, the registration fees and and things like that, and what people can expect um, to see when they see a statement from a settlement agent? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Each shire is different. So some shires only charge, for example, $80 for their change of ownership. Some shires charge $250, so it varies a lot. So when I do send out a cost disclosure to a client, um, under a quote, I always overestimate, especially with the Landgate title searches, because some developments will have, say, one restrictive covenant on that property, which goes through what your rules or what you can and can't build and how things should look in that subdivision to make them look great. Some have 12 on it, so there's a big difference. So I always overestimate for clients because I feel that I'd rather know up front this is the maximum it's going to be and get a big shock saying, actually, it's an extra $150 to what you were told from the start. So... Um, all of those fees applicable, they come to about $250 to $300 for those inquiry fees. Then you've got your land gate transfer fee, and a lot of these do change on the purchase price. And then you've also got any stamp duty, if applicable, your settlement fees, um, any rates adjustments for your water and shire rates, and then you've got your PEXA electronic settlement fee. So most settlements have changed over from paper to electronic now. 
that came in a few years ago and 90% are via PEXA. So what would happen on the paper world is you would do a settlement, documents get lodged at Landgate and wait for someone to actually go through those documents and check them all before they register them and that could take up to six weeks for that to happen. So builders couldn't go to site and start until that title changes over whereas on PEXA it is instant now and obviously the title goes straight into the buyer's name on the day of settlement. Cool. So um, essentially with that sort of that PEXA thing you're talking about, it really means for uh, the buyer that they're getting into their home uh, that little bit sooner. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, yeah, obviously plans can get submitted to council straight away and they're saving you know six weeks, sometimes more um, ahead of their build time because of the fact that everything's electronic now. Yeah, awesome. So just, um, and it, this seems like a silly thing to say, but um, a lot of people don't even know what stamp duty is. They just sort of see a, a large sum of money. That's if they're you know, not a first home buyer and under that threshold, they just sort of see this big chunk of money and wonder what that cost is. Can you just explain what stamp duty is? Yeah, so it's a tax that the government charge on top of a purchase price of land. So that goes, goes through the government, um, obviously, to create revenue for the state. Okay, cool. So it's just like their little their little drink on your purchase, basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Got to fill in the stadium somehow. Okay, so I know that um, yesterday during uh, take one of our little phone call, um, we sort of got towards the end and I asked whether there was anything else you wanted to go through and you wanted to touch on uh, foreign buyers and the implications uh, for that. Uh, did you want to just go through that a, a little bit now? Absolutely. So... That's where I touched on earlier about those preliminary documents. So in your preliminary documents, I send a form, which is a foreign buyer declaration, which specifically asks to-the-point questions. Are you an Australian citizen? Are you an Australian permanent resident or a New Zealand special category visa holder? And if you're not, you then come under the foreign buyer category, so you'll become a foreign buyer. And on top of any duty payable, even if you're a first home buyer and there is no duty, you have to pay a foreign buyer tax, which is 9% of that purchase price, which is a significant amount, So, which is why it's crucial to get documents back to your settlement agent to make sure they can attend to those things straight away and bring that up with you straight away. So when you're looking around to, to see if you're looking at buying or, or building, just to keep in mind, ask those professional people around you questions. If you're not sure, do your research because there's nothing worse than signing an offer and acceptance document, which is a contract finding out, oh my goodness, I am a foreign buyer, now I'm up for this duty. And you can't get out of that contract. Once you've signed on that dotted line, then you are definitely in that contract. So keep those things in mind because a lot of people aren't aware of the implications of that and the third, the Foreign Investment Review Board approval, which as we touched on yesterday, also has an application fee as well. Yeah, nice. All right, thanks for that, uh, Chantel. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, cover off at all while I've got you? Just mainly if especially for your first home buyers, even if you're not a first home buyer, just because you've done it once before, it's not something you do every day. Just lean on these people around you. That's what we're here for. If you have a question, there is no such thing as a stupid question. Just ask. And if I can't answer it, we'll definitely put you onto someone that can because there's nothing worse than sitting there thinking, I really should have asked that question or I really don't understand. (laughs) Please just rely on all of us and ask us because that is exactly what we're here for. Awesome. Thanks, Chantel. My absolute pleasure. So there you have it. The dark art of settlement has been demystified by the lovely Chantelle. I honestly can't speak highly enough of her. She's an absolute uh, gun at what she does, as you've just heard. Uh, She certainly does uh, the vast majority of my settlements if my clients don't have uh, anything arranged already. 
So next up, we're going to be talking to Jamie from Urban Quarter about all things land. So anything from, you know, identifying the best block to, you know, why some blocks are so much cheaper than others when they've actually just really got higher site costs. We're going to dive into things like what land rebates and discounts actually mean, uh, what free fencing and landscaping means uh, when you're purchasing a piece of land and all that sort of thing. So let's have a chat to Jamie. G'day, Jamie. You there, buddy? Hey, Ryan. Yeah. How are we today? Yeah, good, dude. Thanks for taking some uh, time out of your day to sort of talk land with us. So, look, fill me in on exactly what your role is as a land agent and also just a little bit about uh, Urban Quarter and the estates that you guys have in Perth, just to give people a little bit of context about uh, who you are. Yeah, sure. So, my name is Jamie Ronchi. I've been in the real estate industry for 10 years. So, where I am at the moment is Urban Quarter um, as a land sales agent. So basically, essentially we're a developer and we sell land all through Western Australia, all the way up from uh, Eglinton, which is up the ancient way, all the way down to Dunsborough Lake. So in the interim, we've also got Providence, Wellard, Fleshley Park, Southern River, Springtime Haynes, Florida Beach, Dunsborough Lake, and then east of the beach up in Eglinton as well. Awesome. So, look, I guess uh, what you're here for is to, I guess, talk land uh, and location. Um, so, I guess, what should people be on the hunt for when they are looking for their block of land to build a home? Yeah, well, that's the most important thing. As the old real estate saying goes, location, location, location. What you, what, uh, in, as an individual, what you need to look for is exactly how suitable the location that you're looking in is for yourself, for your work, um, your future. So, you know, for children, for schools, shopping centres, um, family members, friends, all those kinds of things. So it will be a big difference um, and you need to work out as well. Exactly how is this changing the location going to impact the rest of your life? Um, if you're a southern, if you're from south of the river and now work may be in north of the river and you're looking to move up there, maybe take a little bit of time just to work out exactly how that daily commute is going to work. And um, this is a this is a five to 30 year decision that you're making. So it's always good just to tick off all the boxes and make sure you are making the right decision on terms of where you're going to be moving to. Cool. So in terms of, I guess, decisions around being close to amenities, so things like uh, schools, shops, parks, and that sort of thing. Can we just touch on that a little bit? I know that with schools specifically, uh, particularly uh, in Perth at the moment, areas um, like Harrisdale, that's like a, a a place that people have just got to be at the moment for that school catchment, and it seems to be a really uh, important one at the top of everyone's list. So can you just sort of cover off, I guess, pros and cons of uh, being close to shops, schools, and, and that? It's funny you touch on that topic. Bletchley Park, Southern River. Unfortunately, we don't meet the Harrisdale Senior High School catchment. Um, and that is why we're priced effectively where we are. If we were in that catchment, then obviously we would increase the price. So again, doing your research is really vital. If, if being in that catchment, um, isn't important to you, then it may be good to look at other areas because small things like this actually do impact the price that you're going to be paying. Um, in terms of schools, parks, shopping centres, public transport, all those things are very important, but it's always a case-by-case basis and you need to work out exactly what is important to you. Um, if you have a large shopping centre right next door, you, you need to know that you're going to be having a lot of strangers entering the estate or entering the area. 
um, just coming to do their daily shopping, going to Woolies, going to McDonald's, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a more private, sedentary type of person, then maybe you don't want to be too close in proximity to those. Um, and then you're not going to be having, you know, other, other, other random people entering the estate and entering your area. Um, especially for future appreciation as well. These are very important because if you are in close proximity to, you know, parts, um, sort after schools like the Harrisdale Senior High School, um, public transport, maybe for people doing the daily commute into the city, all those types of things. These are always going to impact the price you pay and also the future appreciation of your property. So would it be sort of fair to say there with what, what you're saying, like um, with shops specifically, uh, it's, I guess, good to be close to shops, but sometimes you can also be a little bit too close? Definitely, definitely. So if you don't want to be too congested, you don't want, you know, strangers entering your area, um, it may be even just a little bit better just to be that two-minute drive out of, out of there. You may not be able to walk um, walk to the shops in, you know, your thongs and singlet every single night um, <laughs> before they shut, but... You know, for, for, for being a little bit further away, it may be a little bit beneficial for you. Okay, cool. So, look, let's dive into, I guess, what the differences are between working with a major developer um, when it comes to choosing your land versus uh, some of the smaller subdivisions around that might be 20, 30, even 100 lots. Can you sort of just talk about the, the major differences between the two for me? Yeah, 100 percent. So one of the largest um, differences between using a develop, going to a developer and maybe a smaller developer or purchasing a private block. And when I say private, I mean, as in, you know, mum and dad, a mum and dad seller or, you know, um, someone's just subdivided the front of their home and they're just looking to sell the back of the block. There's a lot of different, a lot of differences in, in terms of, um, establishment, financial backing, et cetera, et cetera. So if you are going to a larger developer with around a thousand to two thousand lots in their estate, you're going to understand that they're going to have a pretty significant financial backing to be able to do those things and actually complete the estate plan as it's advertised. When you are looking at private lots, you know, maybe just someone doing a small subdivision between 20 to 100 lots, um, you want to know that they have the financial backing. Uh, just like right now, we have this uh, coronavirus crisis at hand um, and things may be looking a little bit slower than they previously were. But if a smaller developer's um, mortgaged up, you know, you may actually find that they can't actually complete the rest of the estate. And you might be left with a block of land where you're promised a, a high school just down the road or a primary school or a, or a small medical centre or shopping centre. But it may come to the fact that they actually can't um, complete these works. And that's going to have a very detrimental effect on the value of your property. If you purchased the, on a sales plan where something was going to be there, you're going to be factoring that price in into the price you pay. Once that isn't there anymore, then you may be actually hit with a bit of a deficit. Um, so you do have to be very, very careful. And also, it's a very good, important question to ask. Is this a private estate or not? Because if it's a private estate, that means there's no social housing and there's no Department of, um, Department of Housing and Government inquiries in that estate. When they do have... Uh, the social housing, et cetera, that can have, a, again, a detrimental effect on people may not want to live in those areas. There's nothing wrong with those areas at the end of the day, and it does factor back into the price that you may pay. But um, some people, you know, may be a little bit put off by living in those areas and would rather sure. a more private residential lifestyle. Yep, I understand uh, completely. Um, I actually have seen that happen before with uh, some of the smaller uh, developers uh, basically not having the capital to complete uh, some of the works in uh, an estate. So it can be as simple as 
you know, the ability to uh, afford a roundabout in the estate or something like that. Like if they've just been sitting on a, a bunch of land, they're not a real developer. Um, they sort of decide to subdivide it all up and sell it off, but don't really understand the the amount of capital required to develop all the infrastructure in the area. Uh, sometimes the places can look a little bit half finished. And look, that's not um, by any means to say that uh, you should avoid the, the smaller ones. It's just that it's something to keep in mind because it does pop up from time to time. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, like odd-shaped odd blocks and I guess the pros and cons with those. Obviously, uh, with odd-shaped blocks, you can get them a little bit cheaper sometimes. Um, can you sort of just touch on, you know, why that's the case and I guess, yeah, pros and cons? Yeah, of course. So the odd-shaped blocks is a really good one. Um, Side-loaded blocks, corner blocks, all those things do impact the price that you're going to pay for your land. Um, and what you need to understand is that a block that may be a little bit odd shaped, maybe at a discounted price or even a corner lot, maybe it uh, look like a discounted price compared to the rest of the blocks on the market. But you need to ask the question, why is this? Nothing's free in life. Nothing's given in life, unfortunately. And you need to do a little bit more due diligence and research into why these things can be. Sometimes in corner lots, like in Bletchley Park, um, you actually have to build a masonry wall, which costs around the $10,000 mark to actually construct. So we've actually factored that into our pricing. So if you look at a 450 square meter standard block and a 450 square meter corner block, you're actually going to see a difference in price. And that is exactly why. So um, also with the odd shaped blocks. So since they aren't standard, and sometimes you may have to do a custom design home on these, we do factor that into our pricing as well. So it may even be that um, the pricing that we put in may be a little bit less than what you would actually have to pay. And you can actually get a considerable discount just because it's not the standard. It's just something a little bit about different about the ordinary, but you can actually utilize this and save yourself five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars sometimes. Yeah, I've actually um, got a few uh, corner designs popping up. Funnily enough, it's in one of your estates called Springtime down in Haynes, and there's um Several corner lots, <clears throat> sorry, along the uh, the park front there, um, which also overlooks a bit of a river. And the blocks are quite funny shapes, and they've actually been sitting on the, uh, your price list for a little a little while. And it's been sort of baffling to me as to why, because uh, the benefit of these corner lots is that you can actually have that side entry garage, which in my opinion is a, a brilliant thing because it means that you can maximise the actual front of the block for, in this case, the living areas to grab uh, views of the park and the river and things like that. So it really just comes down to clever design uh, with those funny shape and corner blocks. In my opinion, they actually can be some of the better blocks that you uh, can buy. Uh, but the only caveat to that would be is that the builder that you're working with and the building consultant need to have, I guess, the design savviness and I guess creative flair and a little bit of foresight to get something that works really well uh, for those lots. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, now, just in regards to things like soil class, um, I think it might be worth touching on that just a little bit. So what you, I guess, often see, and I've delved through price lists uh, all the time, is um, that sort of it's almost a case of blocks that are sort of further west tend to be a little bit more soft and sandy. And as we get a little bit closer to the hills, they get a little bit more clay and the site costs go up. But you often actually see the block prices go down a little bit as well. Not a hard and fast rule, but um, kind of just like follows that rule a little bit as you get closer to the hills. Would that be fair? 
Yeah, 100%. So that's a prime example. Um, always look at the soil classification because if it's standard, easy class soil, it's going to be a lot less expensive for a builder to construct your slab on and to construct your home. If it's going to be clayey, um, areas like Coogee as well on the southern suburbs, I know there's okay. a lot of limestone out there. Yep. So um, something that may appear a little bit cheaper, you go, oh, wow, this is a fantastic deal. Um, but then that you might have $50,000 worth of site works out there. So always do your due diligence. Um, and that's another, just going back into the aspect of purchasing from a developer to purchasing from a private sale. Out, out, you know, start, example like in QG, um, a private sale purchaser, they're not going to factor these um, costs into it. And you're not going to find out until you finally put a shovel in the ground. Um, yep. Developers have actually factored these things into their pricing because they do understand that it's not a one-off sale. It's you know maybe a thousand lots of uh, thousand lots that they're selling. So they've actually factored these things into the price. So it's always just a, a good um, due diligence uh, thing just to do and just make sure that you're not going to get slugged an arm and a leg at the end of the day. Yeah, I think um, just for people that are looking at uh, I guess private sale lots. So this might be where yeah you're buying a rear lot. Or, you know, it might be a subdivided lot that's side by side and there are a lot of those people around. One of the best things that you can do in terms of carrying out that due diligence before you really pull the trigger on it, if they're not already available, would be getting a site survey and a geotechnical report. Um, for the for what you would spend, you might spend, I don't know, 1500 bucks or something like that on getting those done. With those documents, a builder is then going to be able to give you specifics around those uh, site costs that are going to be involved to build on that lot. And if you are going to be spending a lot of money on a lot and you're really keen on something, it's worth spending that little bit just to make sure. Um, if you're building in a, a major estate, uh, as an example, when you pay your deposit with the builder, those costs are built into your build already. It's just that if you are buying one of those one-off lots, that's definitely a, uh, a good piece of advice. I would certainly take that on board and make sure that you do uh, carry that out. Um, all right, let's talk about the fencing and landscaping side of things now. So quite often when uh, people are looking for land, they will see that fencing and landscaping is included. Can you just cover off exactly what that is? Obviously, it's fencing and landscaping, but it's a little bit more involved than that. Yeah. Of course, of course. So typically with all of our blocks, we actually include the fencing and landscaping. So this is just an added incentive that we do give to our purchasers because obviously we want the whole estate to look um, completed and beautiful. So that's going to include your side fencing and your rear land, uh, sorry, side fencing and your rear fencing, and then also basic front landscaping. So when you go out to the display villages, you might notice that um, some of these display houses have planter boxes and a and a you know a water fountain and a bird fountain and then a, you know, a gold statue of Cupid sitting on there and all that kind maybe, of stuff. Maybe maybe your house would does that, but. <laughs> but things like that obviously aren't going to be fencing and landscaping packages that they do give you. So it's always a good exercise. Ask the question. Always be asking questions. What exactly am I getting? How much is it to the value of? And um, maybe drive around the, those areas and see what everyone else has. And if you pick up any similarities, you're going to understand, oh, well, this is what I can be expecting. Um, but always just ask the question. Sometimes they'll get, even pass on their contractor details, and you're more than welcome to give them a call and just say, hey, you know, do you have any images of what I will actually be provided at the end of the day? Sure. So, and I guess that's um, yeah important to factor into your decision making process when you're choosing one block versus another. So, if fencing and landscaping is included on one and not included on the other, it's probably, in my experience, around a seven to ten thousand uh, dollar cost implication. Would that be a fair assumption? 
Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And obviously, this is going to be re- that's going to be reflected on the price. So again, if you see one block a little bit cheaper than the exact same block next door, you've got to ask yourself the question: Well, why is that one cheaper? Is it the soil classification? Is it that fencing and landscaping isn't included? Always make sure you ask the question. Yep. Um, and it, just very quickly, I'm just going to segue into a little story that um, popped up recently for some clients that uh, I'm working with at the moment. And they were actually looking for some blocks in Wattle Grove. Um, we found some and they were more expensive than some others they found. Uh, if you looked at just the dollar per square meter rate, and I did a little bit more of a dig into it to figure out why. Um, and there is always a why. They were significantly cheaper for larger blocks of land. And it turned out that these cheaper ones were actually uh, they were survey strata for a start. Uh, they um, had a, a worse soil classification. So the um, there was more sort of clay and things like that there. So the site costs were inherently higher. And it was also right next to a industrial rail line. And I think it was Roe or Tonkin Highway. Um, and so there was also significant noise implications on the lot. So what that meant was, is that the houses need to be upgraded um, in terms of uh, glass and insulation and things to factor in how close they were to the noise source. Now, what that actually meant cost-wise was, is that to build like-for-like homes on either these cheaper lots or the more expensive lots, they actually still would have been better off on the more expensive uh, lots because the the costs over at the the cheaper lots were so high to actually even get the build out of the ground, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. That's a good yes. example. Yeah, so it's um, if something looks too good to be true, there's definitely definitely more to it. Yeah, ab- abs- absolutely. Um, so always ask your builder, building consultant, um, to do a bit of digging for you because yeah, it's it's not always what it seems. So with uh, negotiation on land, I guess. Um, so let's talk about uh, some dis- things like discounts and land rebates and that sort of stuff. So obviously, you do see a lot of, I guess, front end marketing from a lot of usually the major developers saying that they've got, you know, $10,000 off till the end of the month or for summer or whatever it might be. Um, Can you just sort of talk about um, how all of those sort of things work? So the difference between, say, a builder rebate versus settlement rebate and uh, how else you can negotiate price as well? Yeah, of course. Yeah, 100%. So you may drive around to different estates and you see that big stickers on their sign saying $10,000 off. And, uh, you know, spring sale or whatever it may be. Um, so rebates, they can be used in a number of factors. So depending on, it is a case-by-case scenario, depending on your financial situation, um, we can do things called a builder rebate. So that's actually where we do a builder rebate and we do pass that savings onto the builder, which reduces the price of your construction of your home. Um, then we can do also buyer rebates as well. So that's basically cash back at settlement. And that's like an added incentive to purchase one of our blocks compared to maybe a competitor or, um, or, or uh, another infill block around the corner. So, um, negotiating. So 100%, again, always ask the question, is there any discounts? Is there any rebates? It's, you know, are we negotiating on the blocks? And um, some places they, they, they don't, um, but again, this is going back to a private developer compared to a private seller, as in a mum and dad seller. Um, typically in the open real estate market, you can negotiate, and that's, and that's inherently um, just a given, and that's usually factored into their pricing as well. You know, if they're looking for 280000 they'll probably put it on for 299000 Typically with developers, we are priced to meet the market, Sometimes there is a bit of leeway there, so it's always good to ask the land agent or ask the builder to try and negotiate on your behalf. 
Um, we are professionals. We do this every day of our life and exact same with yourself, Ryan. So again, it would be really good for one of your buyers to say, Ryan, well, you know, can you try and get us a bit of a discount on the land? And I'm sure you're more than happy to call me up and say, Jamie, uh, we need a deal done. Can I have a $5,000 discount or something like that? So um, <laughs> it's always just worth asking the question. And the worst thing that we can ever say is no, unfortunately, we're not doing those at this time. And then you can make an educated decision from there. Cool. No worries. And look, I might actually just touch on this because at the time of, I guess, recording this, we are creeping up to uh, June 30 and uh, quite often things like these discounts and rebates at this time of year, they're only going to be offered if you can settle. So pay for that land in its entirety before June 30. So can you explain a little bit about why that time constraint does pop up around this time of year? So just after tax time, that's usually when when most places have to pay their land tax. So obviously it's an added expense for them to hold onto those blocks. So they're looking to offload those blocks as soon as possible. This typically only happens with titled land. And when I say titled, that means the land is ready, it's constructed, and you know, tomorrow you could put a slab down on it. So obviously they've got this stock that they've been trying to sell for quite a while now, and it's more of an incentive for them to sell it prior to the 30th of June than it is to do it after the 30th of June. So again, that's another time that you may actually be um, pretty incumbent to say, hey, let's negotiate or, hey, let's take advantage of this discount because once June comes, you're going to be paying $10,000 more for that block of land. So it does w- help sometimes to work sooner rather than later. And uh, just if you are sort of going down that path as well, it's always important to discuss with your builder at that time to make sure that they can also meet those timeframes. It's not as simple as you just saying, yep, we can do that. Uh, The builder does have to do a lot of paperwork if you're doing a house and land transaction anyway. Um, And that does take quite a bit of time. So it's very important to discuss that uh, with your builder to make sure that every, all all of your ducks basically uh, fall in a row. Is there uh, anything else that you would like to, to go through before we say goodbye, mate? Oh, not really. I think we've touched base on most things today. I um, just want to say a very thank you for having me on and um, always really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for the idea too, mate. Uh, funnily enough, everyone listening, this uh, sort of little podcast video thing that we are doing was actually Jamie's idea. He uh, read my book uh, a little while ago and uh, yeah, basically said that I should try and do it in this format. So it's the first time I've ever done uh, anything like this. So we're sort of fumbling our way through it, but hopefully you are enjoying it. Yeah. No, lovely. Thanks for having me on again. No worries. Thanks, mate. Thanks, bud. Bye. So there you have it. Over the last couple of episodes, we've talked about how to get finance for your new home, how to sort of select your builder and uh, the right building consultant to suit you, uh, finding the right block of land and how to settle on that land. What we're going to be doing next episode is actually going into the nitty gritty of the actual product within the home a little bit more. And we're also going to be catching up with uh, Jamie Gilmore from Intelligent Home at Length, uh, who's essentially going to take us through the tech space and how that fits into a new build. Obviously, technology is something that's moving very quickly and becoming part of our lives more and more on a very, very uh, rapid uh, basis. So look, that hits it on the head for this episode. Uh, remember, you can always get me on Facebook and Instagram at Build with Dezo. So that's Build with D-E-Z-O. That about wraps it up. We'll catch you next time. Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes. Available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.